Happy Palm Sunday. You don't know what to say back to that, do you? <laughs> like next week, if I said, he is risen, like you might know, some of you might know what to say, right? But so this is the beginning of what the church calendar calls Holy Week. And so this is the celebration on the church calendar when Jesus enters back into Jerusalem. And, and this is hinting at Jesus' pending or coming triumph. And so there's this aspect of celebration that is part of this day. But there's also this reality that as Jesus comes back and he observes, he looks at Jerusalem and really he's looking into people's hearts, that he's saddened by what he sees. Saddened to the point that he begins to weep over what he's looking at. So yes, he's coming back to triumph, but he also understands what he's coming back to is going to be horrific. It's going to be costly. It's going to hurt him. He's going to suffer immensely, but yet at the same time, he knows this is what it means to lead. For him, Lead, and, and leadership in general means that we lay down our lives. And Jesus knows that's what he's coming to do. And so it's a reminder for us at the beginning of this week called Holy that Jesus looks at us and he weeps. Not because he's ashamed, but because we're not yet who he desires us to be. And he comes to restore and to redeem, and to save. Okay, so uh, good morning. You missed it. Yeah, all right, late to the party. Okay, so we are preaching through the New Testament book of Acts. This book records the start of Jesus' church. It is a book filled with stories that recount the many ways in which God pursues people and ultimately saves them. And God oftentimes saves the people who we least expect him to save. A couple of weeks ago, we heard about the Ethiopian eunuch, and Peyton talked about some of the obstacles or the barriers that were there in order for this individual to be saved. We're given stories about how sin wrecked people's lives in Acts and threatened Jesus' church, but more than this, we see how God works through his Spirit to instill hope and perseverance in his people when it's least expected. We see how God possesses a power that overwhelms any and every other so-called power. We are not hopeless people. Last week we saw how God unexpectedly saved a man named Saul. And after God saved him, this is what he said. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Gentiles means non-Jewish people. And kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And in this statement being made here to Saul, there are two things that are promised to him. The first of which he will preach Jesus to people. And the second being, he will suffer for preaching Jesus to people. And today we begin a journey with Saul, and we're going to see how these promises made by Jesus are immediately 
fulfilled in Saul's life. But then we can also extrapolate this out and say this is what gospel ministry looks like. What it looked like for Saul, but then also what it looks like for us here and now today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you have a Bible or device, you can turn or swipe there. You can also follow along behind on the screen behind me. I'm going to read Acts 9 verse 20. So where we're going to start and then we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So let me read this. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, he being Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you were faithful to your church in those early days, that your Holy Spirit comforted them, that you walked with them. Thank you that you grew your church to the point that here and now today, those of us trusting in Jesus are counted as part of your church, the greatest designation that we can be given in this world, to be part of Jesus' church. I pray that that would strike us this morning. I pray that it would comfort us and encourage us. And that ultimately, we would be built up. Our faith in Jesus would increase in these moments together. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first thing I want to touch on in these verses is related. It's kind of an indirect thing, but it's, real, it's a timing issue. So in these verses, it talked about what Saul did immediately after he was converted. Uh, But then it also talked about him being in Damascus for many days. So in Acts 9, last week, Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. And today, we read, he immediately proclaimed Jesus. Okay? So there's another book in the New Testament that also kind of recounts what's happening here. And it's in the book of Galatians chapter 1. It kind of recounts some of these details. And at that point... Um, it says there that Saul, who eventually will become known as Paul, 
he writes there, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, the author of Luke, or the author of Acts, whose name is Luke, uh, who's also the author of Luke, uh, he, his intention is not to include all these details. Okay, So he is focused on the foundation and the growth of Jesus' church. So there's going to be some other things that we learn in other parts of the Bible that will speak to what's going on here. But what we know then is that Saul, in this time, went to Arabia and he received a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in that time and in his time in Damascus, there's this this reality of him maturing. He's a new Christian, right? So he also needs to be built up. But then he comes back from Arabia to Damascus, and we read there that he spends many days. And Galatians clarifies what this means. As it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, that Saul spent three years in Damascus before going to Jerusalem. So during this period of three years, he's growing and maturing, and yet at the same time, the Jews that he's talking to are confounded. That They have no answers for what he's presenting about Jesus. So there's this period of essentially three years from the time that he is converted. He goes to Damascus, and then he goes to Arabia, back to Damascus before he ends up going to Jerusalem. So we might read many days, and we might think, oh, that's like 14 days. If you have young kids, you're probably thinking many days is like three days, right? Like, so what does many days actually mean? But Galatians helps us and tells us it was about three years. So some of these details aren't necessarily novel, but they can help us grasp a better context of what's actually happening here in uh, these verses. And, and then also, I think it's really helpful to see how the Bible connects, right? So we're reading in Acts 9, but then there's also something going on in Galatians 1 that's speaking about these exact events as well. All right, one more contextual detail I want to mention here. So we hear this reference to the Jews, and this will repeatedly pop up as we work through the book of Acts. And we could read this as a reference to the whole nation of Israel or all of the Jewish people if we were just reading this straight, okay? But that's not Luke's intent as he's writing about the Jews. Typically, when Luke is speaking of the Jews, he's speaking about those who are opposing Saul or those who, like the religious leaders, those who are opposing Jesus' church um, in general. Okay, so let's go back to Acts 9, uh, verse 20, and let's hone in on, where, on, on the where and the what of Saul's preaching. So he immediately goes into the synagogues, okay, which are synagogues are Jewish places of worship. And what he's doing there is he is preaching Jesus. So the same boldness we saw in Saul as he sought to destroy Jesus' church is now being worked out in a positive way. So Saul's going into the teeth of the lion, okay? He's going into the middle of the war. He's going to the place of religious worship for Jewish people. Okay, so they won't like this, right? Like he's going to be hated for doing this. So my point that here is that it's emphasizing Saul's boldness. But part of his boldness then is in the context of, or the content of what he's preaching as well. 
And it says here that he preaches Jesus as the Son of God. So this teaching in this context requires boldness. This is the same message that infuriated Saul, that led to him killing and imprisoning other Christians. So Saul previously hated the idea that Jesus could be the Son of God. And other religious leaders in the Jewish faith continued in this vein. But maybe we ask the question, maybe we wonder, why is the claim of Jesus as the Son of God so offensive? Why is that a big deal? So, Jesus was accused of many things, okay, by religious leaders. One of them would be the fact that he ate with sinners, okay? They didn't like the fact that he would associate with people who they deemed as unholy or unclean. Also, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. So in that he is claiming divinity, he claimed also equality with God. He said he came from God himself. Okay? So there's a connectedness that Jesus is making eventually, maybe not initially, but eventually in his life to his heavenly Father. And they hated this idea. How could this man, how could he be God? He's human. He's not divine. It goes beyond their ideas of what God could be. Also, religious leaders were afraid of the Jewish crowds getting out of hand because of Jesus. So Rome, where they lived, Rome liked to stay in control. They didn't have any interest in there being any kind of uprisings, okay, or these random teachings that were advancing. They wanted to stay in control. Also, we know that Jesus possessed power and his name was connected to power that threatened the religious leaders and their power and their comfort and their popularity and the luxuries afforded them from these facts. We've talked about this previously in Acts. But despite the lack of popularity of the teaching, Saul is committed to it. He wants people to know what he knows. And not so that he can gain a following. It's not about him, but because he wants people to be changed like him. He wants people to know the hope that resides in him. He wants people to encounter true love. Not this fake, plastic, surfacy love that a lot of the religious leaders um, emanate, okay? He wants people to encounter true love, to know joy so that they can endure throughout their lives so that ultimately they would encounter salvation. Not something that they would work up in and of themselves, but that they would receive as a free gift from God. So what we see in Saul what's being fulfilled here from what Jesus told Saul uh, as he was being saved is that gospel ministry is focused on Jesus. This is what we try to embody here at Center Church. This was true for Saul. He insisted on preaching Jesus in Damascus, which was the very thing that threatened his life. And he probably expected this, right? He knew he was culpable in inciting hatred of Jesus' followers. But 
He didn't stop in Damascus, right? Once he fled Damascus, he headed to Jerusalem. And what did he do there? It says he went in and out among them, which is Jesus' church at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Saul was God's instrument, his chosen instrument to preach Jesus, to make him known. And so his life was about this thing, proving Jesus was the Christ. Christ means anointed one. Okay? So his life was about proving that Jesus was the anointed one. The one who was promised to come for many, many years, generations. So for us today, looking at Saul and his intent should press on us as Jesus' followers. Saul was laser-focused about speaking or on speaking about Jesus, okay? So if he's laser-focused on speaking about Jesus, what is he not laser-focused on speaking about? Himself, okay? So Jesus, not himself. He's giving himself to prove that Jesus is the anointed one in his life, and then he's calling others to do the same. So he's not trying to get others to function in such a way where they are impressed with him or they are catering to his desires. This is where we're pressed, okay? Because we can do this. I know my heart, and I know how much I want others to think well of me, to be impressed with me. And I know you're just as human as I am. This is an insidious disease in all of us. We want to look good to other people. We want others to have regard to us, to, uh, for us, to lift us up in some way. We want what only Jesus deserves. This is not the way of Jesus. For us to live for others, to live for us for the praise of other people. That is not what Jesus calls us to. This is not what the Christian life is about. John 13, 35 infers that we prove Christ and that we are Christ's by our love, not for ourselves, but our love for Jesus' church, by our love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how you and I prove Christ. This is everyday gospel ministry for us. This is what it means to live as a follower of Jesus, to love his church. And to love, like, like we can kind of slap on this idea of what our culture says love is, right? But our definition of love is rooted in Jesus hanging on a bloody cross. True love is sacrificial. He doesn't call us to hang on a bloody cross. 
but he does call us to die to ourselves. So loving one another then looks like something that maybe we wouldn't initially choose. It's going to hurt sometimes. It's going to be inconvenient. We're going to be called to do things that we don't want to do. But in that, God promises our joy is connected to that. Maybe we don't see it at the beginning, but he promises it will be there. We'll find Jesus in the midst of that. And that is where our joy is found. So in all of this, then, we get this reminder, Jesus is the point, okay? Jesus is the point of everything. Jesus was the point of Saul's life, and this is true for us if we are followers of Jesus. And it is this aspect, then, that brings about the second promise Jesus made to Saul. He was God's chosen instrument to preach Jesus, and this would result in his suffering. So gospel ministry promises suffering. So many people will accept Jesus as a good teacher. Many people will comply with the idea that Jesus is wise. I remember when I was like in high school and in my 20s, like people would talk about Jesus being your homeboy, okay? Jesus was your homie, okay? People are okay with that construction of Jesus. But to acknowledge Jesus' divinity is where offense occurs. Is Jesus God? And many people will say, no. He's got some good things to say, but he is not God. So I want to be clear about something because I'm making a bit of a jump from Saul to us. So Saul was promised suffering. But I'm extending this to all Christians, to all of us here today. To follow Jesus means we are engaged in gospel ministry and this will lead us into suffering. And the reason I'm extending this to all of us is because that's what Jesus did. And I feel like that's a safe place to go, okay? So John 16, says this. In the world, you will have trouble or tribulation. In the world, we will suffer. So just prior to this verse, Jesus has explained how belief in him is going to result in people running for their lives. So he's telling them this, this is what is going to happen as it leads up to his death. And then when he dies, people are going to be scattered. People are going to be running for their lives. Now, trouble and suffering can come in many forms. The Bible does have a specific emphasis on suffering because of Jesus' name. Okay? Belief in him as a divine being is offensive. So, speaking of our faith in Jesus will at times, not all the time, but will at times upset people. They won't like the idea. And we don't need to be offensive. Like, we don't need to be jerks about talking about Jesus to people, okay? Many Christians feel like, not many, there are Christians who feel like they need to fight that culture war, right? And like, they're going to get in people's face 
and so forth. So we don't need to start fights, okay? We also don't need to be the people who never say anything about Jesus either, right? Like there is middle ground there. The name and claims of Jesus are offensive enough in and of themselves. We, we don't need to make them more offensive. But this is the primary form of suffering Jesus has in view, and I would say Saul has in view, okay? This idea of speaking about Jesus. But there are other forms of suffering we'll encounter as part of our spiritual battle of living in a world that is broken by sin. We will suffer through sickness. We will suffer through relational conflict. We will suffer because we're lonely. Many people suffer because they're hungry. Okay, there are many ways in which people suffer because we live in a broken world. But Saul is feeling suffering acutely because of Jesus' name. He is chased out of Damascus because there was a plot to kill him. He flees to Jerusalem, but he's not there long because there's another threat to his life and people are plotting to kill him again. So Saul suffered through hostility, through persecution, through death threats. Another form of suffering we see here is relational discord. Okay, it talked here about the disciples, the church in Jerusalem, they were all afraid of him. Now, this is due to his sin in his former life. But he's initially ostracized from the other Christians in Jerusalem because of this reality. Another form of suffering would be physical fatigue. He is on the run continuously from here on out. So he went, I meant to have like a pointer and I think it's back there, so sorry. I meant to have a laser. I could point to this, uh, but I forgot it. So, but he went from Damascus, then to Jerusalem. Okay, and then from Jerusalem, we read that he goes to Caesarea. And then from Caesarea, he's going to sail up to Tarsus as well. Okay, so he, he is covering ground. He is traveling. Now, when we think about traveling today, we view that as like, a luxury. Like, this is fun. Let's go on vacation. Unless you have, like, really young kids, for the most part. Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you do, but many people don't like traveling with young kids. But that was not Saul's perspective here. He was not thinking, oh, this will be kind of a, an enjoyable little trip. I'll get to see some sights, and, and this will be great. That was not his perspective. Despite these forms of suffering persisting, I want to highlight one further promise Jesus has given that is demonstrated in these verses, and that is peace. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and the church was being built up, and they were walking in the fear of the Lord. Fear here has the idea of reverence or of awe, okay? They were in awe of God, and they were comforted by God's Holy Spirit. And as this was happening, Jesus' church was multiplying. It was growing, okay? But there's this idea of peace. Now, in John 16, where we just were, when Jesus was promising 
trouble for his church, he was clear, he told them that, that they would have peace because he wanted them to have peace. He told them they were going to have trouble because he wanted them to have peace. Seems counterintuitive, right? But that was his whole purpose for telling them that they would encounter trouble, is he wanted them to, to be filled with peace. Okay, that's not just true for his church then. That's true for us today as well. God's desire is that you would be filled with peace. Okay, I'm I'm not saying all the external circumstances of your life are as you wish they would be. He wants you to be filled with peace. As things are blowing up in the world around us, and I think we could go back this week and we could identify a few things where this world is so broken, so messed up. There is so much pain in this world. And Jesus is saying, in the midst of that, whatever that is for you, he desires that you would be filled with peace. And I know that we're all walking in here today with stuff. We've got conflict, we've got trouble, we're hurting. Marriage isn't what we wish it would be. Maybe there's issues with kids. Job stuff maybe is stressing us out. Don't have the friends that maybe we wish we had. Making hard decisions that pain us. We all walk in here with trouble. Is this promise being actualized for you? It's the offer that Jesus is making. He's saying, my desire is for you to be filled with peace. Not to have perfect external circumstances, but that you would be filled with peace. And John 16 makes it clear that peace can be had in the midst of anything because... Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome whatever trouble you are experiencing. On the cross, he put death to death. He disarmed the power of sin. He suffered for us. He defeated evil. He died, yes, but he also rose from the dead. This is why this upcoming week on Friday that we call good, why we can call it good while looking at his brutal, bloody death. It is good Friday. This is how we can have peace in the face of horrendous realities in this world. Whatever you face today, yesterday, tomorrow, it is not stronger than Jesus. Jesus is over it. He is enough. Having peace in the midst of suffering is not merely a nice idea. It's not just a cute saying that a pastor says. 
Jesus desires this for you in the deepest parts of you, that you would be sturdied, that you would find firmness, that you would know comfort in the midst of whatever is going on around us. But we have to understand it comes through Jesus, through His Holy Spirit living in us, through us trusting in Him, which means not just like this disconnected thought, oh yeah, I believe in a Jesus, I trust in you, but proactively giving ourselves over to Him repeatedly, over and over, letting Him be the anointed one in our hearts that He sits on the throne of our lives. And this has meaning then for our everyday practical realities. Basically, I'm saying life in whatever form is about Jesus. When you go to work, that's about Jesus. When you hang out with your friends, that's about Jesus. When you parent your children, that's about Jesus. When you go and play, participate in hobbies, that's about Jesus. Life, in all its many and varied forms, is about Jesus. And this is why we like to end our sermons in this way, with gospel application. It's about who he is and what he's done, not what we need to do. Okay, now, when we're believing in Jesus and who he is and what he's done, it's going to translate into us living in certain ways, okay? It's going to look like something for us. I have two points of gospel application for us this morning. So first of all, I've just stated this, but God desires your peace and comfort. Okay, so we're going to be tempted to try and take the things our flesh loves. Okay, and what I mean by that, it could be hobbies. It could be Hulu. It could be a food that we really like a job, our family, or many other things, to take those things and then just slap a Jesus bumper sticker on them and try to find peace and comfort in that thing. We're all going to be tempted to do this. Peace and comfort are found in and only in and through Jesus. Not in that thing. Those things can only point to or remind us of Jesus. They can't replace him. And the reality is, when we try and slap a Jesus bumper sticker on a hobby, that hobby is going to disappoint us. Or we're going to become embittered towards God. And maybe you're going to run to that hobby over and over and over until you exhaust that thing. Then you've got to go to a new hobby. And find that feeling that you felt with that old hobby. Okay? Peace and comfort are found in Jesus. All these other good gifts that God gives to us, they can remind us of that. But they can't, we can get semblances of peace and comfort. But once we take those things and we push Jesus to the side and we start running to those things, 
that's when we're going to become disillusioned. That's when we're going to become disappointed with Jesus. We're going to think, what are you doing? Like, where are you? Why are you letting me down? It's oftentimes because we're seeking what Jesus offers through another means rather than Jesus himself. It is Jesus' death and resurrection that must sturdy us. It is his grace that holds us. His Holy Spirit brings comfort. He intends that we be awed by what he has done. Not what someone else has done, not what we might do ourselves, but what he has done. So are you actually looking to Jesus for peace and comfort? Maybe you can answer that question in some way, yes, but for all of us, all of us, myself included, there are ways in which we have to answer that question, no. What are those ways? What are those things? What do we need to surrender to Jesus to admit that this thing, this person cannot provide for me what Jesus can and, and especially if that is a person that we're going to, it's actually cruel to do that to a person. Because you're putting a weight on a person to do something. You're setting them up for disappointment, for failure. There is no spouse. There is no child. There is no friend that can be Jesus. Only Jesus. Now, you may think, Kevin... That's an ambiguous idea. What does it actually mean to look to Jesus for peace? I have, I have no idea what that means. You could say that to me, okay? So our hope is like those kinds of things, a lot of those questions can be worked out in relationship within community groups. Community groups are where we take these things we're talking about, ultimately believing the gospel on Sunday morning. What does that look like in our everyday lives? Okay? We want to work through those things. We want to be in relationship with one another. So we want, we want this to happen in community groups. But you can also talk to someone else that you respect, that you feel like is mature. I'm happy to talk with you as well. I would love to chat about these things. But ultimately, God desires your peace and comfort. And where you're not experiencing that, you're not experiencing what Jesus intends for you. Secondly, don't be surprised by suffering. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're going to suffer even if you don't follow Jesus. Okay? So this isn't a reason to run away from Jesus. But you're going to suffer. So then, as Jesus' church, let's cry with each other. Let's care for one another. One another. Let's have relationships that are deep enough that go below the surface that we can actually verbalize our suffering to one another, that we can talk about meaningful things, not, not just live on the surface and pretend everything's okay because everything's not okay. Life is hard. And then in the midst of our suffering, let's point each other to Jesus. I want to close with this. Jesus proved his love for us by suffering and dying. 
And we prove the sufficiency of his love and that he is anointed, he is the anointed one by our love for one another. Okay, there's an indicative here. There's a truth here. Jesus loves us. And the natural outflow of that indicative, the imperative, is that we are to love one another. But we don't skip over the indicative. We don't skip over the truth claim. We don't ex- uh, skip over experiencing Jesus' love for us. That's got to be the foundation for our love for one another.